MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, June 30th, and I'm your co-host, Andrew Torres. And I'm Morgan Stringer. And for Allison Gill, who's on vacation, we have a fantastic show for you today. But first, as always, we need to thank our patrons who support the show over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as $1 an episode. If you haven't done that yet, consider doing that now. It's a great way to say you love the show and you want this partnership to continue. So thanks to this week's new patrons. Dana Hufford, Quartermaster Jacob Thorne, Matt Gatewood, Jeff Gelbach, Debbie Morse, Tom Pegg, Chris Galvin White, Jordan Galash, James Heath, comedian Aaron Trahan, a.k.a. Game Jumper X. <laughs> and a big thank you to Half Squatch, to Dave Walker, Gretchen Waldo, Satanic Nightjar. I've learned that that's an insect. I think It's an, either an insect or a plant, but it's amazing. I need it. Uh, <laughs> Leslie, Liam Ferris, Greta Kretschmer, Atomic Penguin, that is at Atomic Penguin 7 on Twitter. That's pretty cool. Anne Dubell, Beverly Potter, Denise, and Guardian Bellerin. And if you'd like to join them, head over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. And now, on to the A Block. Yeah, so, Morgan, this story broke over the weekend, but um, undoubtedly will still be front page news by the time that uh, everyone's hearing this episode. Everyone now knows the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, that's Cy Vance's office, working hand-in-hand over the past six months with New York Attorney General Letitia James, has now said that indictments are imminent and reportedly gave attorneys for the Trump Organization until the end of the day, Monday, that's when we're recording this, uh, to make their case as to why the Trump Org and possibly various executives, likely including CFO Alan Weisselberg, should not be indicted. Um, although people who, you know, were playing along with the Mueller, she wrote fantasy indictment league probably won't be surprised. I, I, I am betting, Morgan, that that some of the show listeners are um, surprised learning that that companies can be indicted for criminal charges. Corporations are people, my friend, <laughs> just like real people. A corporation can sue, can be sued and is capable of committing crimes. Ask me how I know. Uh, <laughs> I suspect that what trips up a lot of people is that you think of the primary way that people get held responsible for committing crimes is by being put in jail. And you can't put the Trump organization in jail as yeah, much wow. as many of us <laughs> wish probably that they could. But you can find the crap out of it. You can impose legal monitoring to make sure it doesn't keep criming in the future. 
And because the company acts through individuals, the top executives at those companies can do prison time when they've acted in their official capacity. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And and I, in so far as, you know, rich white people ever suffer for anything like this actually happens probably more than you think. Right. Like so um, Sanjay Kumar was CEO of Computer Associates, uh, the Fortune 500 company, probably I think a Fortune 100 company. He cooked the books there to the tune of two point two billion dollars um, and served 12 years in prison for obstruction of justice and securities fraud. Uh, Bernie Ebers, our Good friend. Got 25 years for orchestrating the WorldCom scandal. Uh, Martin Grass at Rite Aid. Joseph Naccio at Quest. Walter Forbes at Sendit. Right. They they all did the same thing, which was acting on behalf of their companies to fraudulently misstate revenue. Right. So that as to avoid taxes, so as to inflate the market value of the company in whatever way. And then, you know, deriving the benefits from having an artificially inflated value to the company. So they're working on the company's behalf in terms of committing a crime. And uh, and they were held responsible to the tune of, you know, more than a decade in prison. And to fill in the gaps, prosecutors will often charge a company CEO in an individual capacity as well, because when a fraud mm-hmm. gets committed, it's either on behalf of a company, as they say, like WorldCom, which is my hometown fraud. Uh, I used to have uh, ringside tickets to the Jackson Bandits, which was the team that Bernie Ebers owned. Um, oh, good. Yeah, pun, I guess, was intended there. Um, so in that case, like where you're <laughs> helping the company. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. <laughs> Um, I was like, maybe he was telling us a bit too much there. <laughs> but so, yeah, like WorldCom, where you're helping the company evade taxes and benefiting indirectly from the ill-gotten gains, or you're defrauding the company like John Regas and his idiot sons at Delphia, they basically use the company's accounts as their own personal piggy bank, which is what we think of when we think of, you know, this type of fraud, right? So you charge these guys individual individually and on behalf of a company Mm. and then you figure out whether they were working with or against the rest of the organization yeah and so here we're talking about the trump work right (laughs) so i I know what everyone wants to know when we talk about top executives at the trump organization um I, i i we're here to give you the temporary bad news okay listen up donald trump will not be indicted by cy vance and tish james this week Okay. That doesn't mean he won't be indicted. It means um, the way prosecutors work in cases like this is by proceeding with their strongest case first, right? Remember, the first person up in the Mueller probe was George Papadopoulos, right? Flynn came later. Michael Cohen didn't flip for almost two years. It took until 2019 to indict Roger Stone. And, you know, that guy's a walking felony waiting to happen. <laughs> Yeah, every time he opens my mouth, I'm like, mm, I think that might be a crime you've admitted to. <laughs> but <yes. laughs> yeah. And yeah, here we have very strong indications that Vance is going to start with Weiselberg. So we know mm. that Vance and James have been looking into these allegations that the Trump organization used misleading valuations of its properties to deceive lenders and taxing authorities, which you don't want to defraud a tax authority. They, they will send you <laughs> to jail. Um, do not pass go, do not collect $200. But we've also learned recently that they've also been investigating whether taxes were paid on fringe benefits for company executives. So this is according to court documents and Trump's attorney, Ronald Fischetti, who basically threw down a bunch of taunts on Monday night. Uh, that behavior is so weird. So look, it, it's important to keep this straight. Fischetti is Trump's personal lawyer 
And he told Politico two things that I think probably are true. He said a bunch of stuff that almost certainly isn't. But the two things that, that probably are true are, one, that Trump will not be indicted this week. And two, that the Trump org and various executives probably will be. Right. And notice that the lawyer who represents the Trump organization, right, Alan Fuderfoss, has kept his goddamn mouth shut. So, Morgan, like, how do you read this, I don't know, full court press that Fischetti put on Monday night? It's so weird. Uh, Bizarre. (laughs) So Fischetti began by mocking the potential charges to be brought by Vance, which is certainly a choice. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is that waving the red carpet in front of the bull or? Uh, Yeah, I yeah, it's like a WWE event's about to happen. I'm not sure what's going on. um, So he's got the chair. He's got the chair. We're yeah, we're we're about to see it go down. The Rock's going to enter. Like I, I would not be shocked by anything at this point. So he told Fischetti told Politico that the only charges he knew of was that members of Vance's team said they were considering bringing charges against the Trump Organization and its individual employees related to alleged failures to pay taxes on corporate benefits and perks. So these are the cars and apartments you mentioned earlier, which we presume involves only a handful of top execs and would not constitute serious felonies under New York law. It's crazy that's all they had, Fischetti added, after emphatically stating that the indictment would not involve any of the allegations by and about Michael Cohen or Stormy Daniels, which... I think it's kind of a, you know, interesting aside, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, look, it, <laughs> I, I I, mean, I think we could psychoanalyze this guy for days, but like it, it, saying we don't expect the New York indictments to involve Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels, right, is like pointing out that, you know, gummy bears are gluten free. Like, well, of course they are. Right. Like it, it, nobody expected them to have any gluten in them. Right. Like it, it, it it's not bread. Um, it, it, and the same way, like the Stormy Daniels stuff is very clearly a federal election law crime, right? Like you and I have talked about that a lot back over on opening arguments. Um, and, and especially with the New York dual sovereigns rule, right? Like I, I wouldn't want Vance to have to make some kind of like half-ass fraud chart, right? Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't even know what you could get Trump on with respect to Michael Cohen, calling laundering illegal hush money payments under federal election law and calling them, uh, you know, uh, retainers. Right. Like there's a lot of stuff you could get Michael Cohen on and has, you know, they have gotten Michael Cohen on. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a weird flex. Um, but let's 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 read between the lines a little bit on the rest of the stuff uh, that Fischetti said. OK, um, so first, he very clearly talked about what, what he'd been told. Right. I will be stunned. I'll be the first person I'll do an Andrew was wrong here on this show next week. If if the first set of charges against the Trump org do not also include the top line real estate fraud stuff, right? The inflating the value of the properties. I, that evidence has been uh, worked over in the public. The New York Times has done really good investigative journalism on it. Um, and if that charge is not brought um Everybody has a has a right to be unhappy about uh, about what Cy Vance's office has done. And I'll have to revisit my uh, my my evaluation of him. And and, and I've defended him uh, on the show. Um, But I understand, like, why Vance wouldn't have told Trump's personal lawyer 
about those charges because if the fraud was ongoing, it occurred while Trump was president and presumably not personally running the day-to-day operations, right? So it's none of Fischetti's business. So, you know, number one, he just said, I was told about X, right? There may be things that he wasn't told about. Um, And then number two, note how careful Fischetti was to parse his words. This is from the same political article, quote, they just said when this indictment comes down, he, meaning Trump, won't be charged. And then Fischetti adds, they also said our investigation is ongoing. Right. And in a subsequent interview uh, with an Alabama newspaper, of all things, uh, Fischetti accidentally conceded. Yeah, I can't say he's out of the woods yet completely. <laughs> Do not discount Alabama newspapers. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> they get they get good. They get good quotes. They get right? good uh, things. Uh, you should read their um, uh AL.com's recent article, they interviewed a politi- local politician there about critical race theory, and it was clear he had no idea what the hell critical race theory even was. <laughs> it was uh, quite amusing and also infuriating. So, yeah, don't sleep on them. They are doing some this good was, journalism. This was, AL, this was AL.com, so all right. They is, are. They are doing good work. Our, uh, our SEC correspondent, Morgan Stringer, out there to uh, to uh, give props to AL.com. Well, I, I rescind the... Uh, my uh, my backhanded compliment about uh, Alabama. No, it's a good story and, and good work. Anyway, I interrupted. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I try not to give Alabama too much credit being somebody from Mississippi, but you know. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this does remind me of the classic Trump playbook. Like, you know, when bad news is coming, you go on the offensive. You have Bill Barr get out in front of the Mueller investigation, just repeating these outright lies on national television and then when the bad stuff eventually hits you've muddied the waters enough so that nobody really knows what's going on right that yeah. was the kind of thing happened with the Mueller report where it was like well what does it actually say does it exonerate trump and you know you had all these people doing a back and forth so you make it seem like this is just some tangential thing involving the trump organization and not donald trump at all because you know vance and james they really really want to get at trump i mean yeah. this would be a great career move and this would be you know it i mean you get Trump. That's the biggest thing you yeah. possibly do. <laughs> yeah, you want to do justice, right? Like that—that that is that is the building they work in. It says it on the outside. I, I think you're exactly right. Look, and 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 the key here, the linchpin to everything, is Weisselberg, right? So we heard months ago that Weisselberg had flipped. We talked about that on the show, right? Um, we that was the the story that Allison and I covered about how the New York uh, District Attorney's Office was going to uh, bring pressure on his kids and like sent a subpoena to the school and uh, like weird stuff. Right. And then nothing happened. Right. And so a few weeks ago, we saw rumblings that the DA's office was really unhappy with Weisselberg's lack of cooperation. Right. So that's kind of the, the, the little soft stick. And to me, right, it then makes perfect sense. Right. You, you spend a couple months. Uh, you ask Weisselberg politely to cooperate. He says no. You're like, all right, well, we're going to make life tough on your kids. And then he says and says no. And then you're like, OK, man, well, then we're going to indict you criminally <laughs> and you bring down the hammer on him. And also to um, the Trump org COO, Matthew Calamari. And right. Of, of course, he has a henchman named Calamari. Right. But but you do that. 
And 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 that's when the carrot starts looking pretty tasty, you know? Yeah, you see calamari's about to get fried and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was a little too easy. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it literally, if I, if I like was a writer of the Sopranos, in fact, it got rebooted and I wrote in a character called Matthew Calamari, they'd say, you know, Miss Stringer, I think you've done enough here. <laughs> you need to go. <laughs> but it's uh, real life is crazier than fiction. But yeah, so Business Insider, they interviewed Barbara Rez, a former executive vice president at the Trump Award, and she opined that neither Weiselberg nor Calamari would be willing to go to jail for their boss. If you introduce the notion of criminal charges against any one of them or their children, you change the game completely, she said. Yeah, so by the time the show drops, we'll probably still be waiting to hear what charges get announced and why. But if it seems pretty narrow, right, if it's just the Trump org, Weiselberg and Calamari, on those two fraud scenarios we've talked about, that's still really, really significant. And at the end of the day, if you want to build a case against Trump, you 100%, you absolutely cannot make that case without Weisselberg because that's the guy who signed all the checks. And unlike the past four years, right now, Trump can't pardon anybody. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's gone away. So he can't order his criminal lackey of an attorney general to drop charges against anybody. He can't tell you to skip out on subpoenas because of executive privilege. And everything I've told you is executive privilege. So if you're going to take one for Trump, you better be prepared to do 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And, and so, look, this is going to be a wait and see. Like, it, it, I, if Barbara Ress is correct, like... That these guys are not willing to do a dime for Trump. But I, I, I wanted to go through that. I'm really, really glad um, you, you took us through a lot of that, uh, Morgan, because um, I get the sense that that some of our listeners, it was my first instinct, too, are going to feel demoralized when Trump's name does not Donald Trump Jr. does not show up in the indictment. Um, and if you're feeling that that way, I want you to remember that's exactly how Donald Trump's lawyer wants you to feel. <laughs> yep. And so you get distracted and move on to something else. And, yep. you know, yeah. And his name eventually, he's hoping, doesn't show up. But, you know, he, he's counting on that distraction. So, and one more thing. You're probably thinking, um, well, given that Cy Vance has Trump's tax returns, couldn't he have gotten Trump himself on, say, at least state tax evasion? And the answer to that is probably no. Not without Weiselberg. So Trump runs these companies as LLCs, limited liability companies, and in particular as pass-through entities for tax purposes. So to get from a property to a valuation to a distribution to the number that's on Trump's tax returns, you absolutely have to have some kind of roadmap. So you mm. need the person who turned number A into number B into number C into D and so on. And that person is going to be Alan Weiselberg. Yeah, no, that that's, that's an excellent, excellent point. So... Um, so, yeah, we'll we will keep watching. Uh, don't don't get too demoralized. We'll tell you if it you know turns out bad. But right now, you know, I uh, to me, I think, Morgan, your your read on that is exactly correctly feels like um, the, the kind of thing that somebody who's running scared is trying to, you know, throw up a smokescreen in the uh, in the short to medium term. But uh, but we'll find out. OK, um, everybody, we will be right back after the break. Hey, this is an ad for Steady MD. Hi, friends. This is Andrew here for Cleanup on Aisle 45. You know, I remember when telehealth was just a nice idea, right? It was something that seemed convenient, but not necessary. But now it's the norm, right? And 
many of us, yours truly included, can't really imagine going into a doctor's office right now, right? SteadyMD is the practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. SteadyMD Primary Care is your personal doctor online. It's telehealth done right. No. You start off by taking a quiz. You get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle, your health needs. Next, you have a one-hour appointment with your doctor to start that real relationship. After that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat, right? Unlike other services, this is not a random doctor on call, right? Each SteadyMD doctor has a limited number of patients, so they have time to listen and give you the personal attention that you deserve. Look, I took their quiz. I actually found it to be fun and super informative, right? I, I think you will be comfortable and confident in your primary care physician. SteadyMD Primary Care can help you get and stay healthy. They can help you manage your chronic conditions, concerns, reduce stress, lose weight, sleep better, feel better, all of that, right? All from the comfort of your own home. So skip the waiting rooms, you know, skip the like side-eyeing everybody sneezing in there. Get, get, go with SteadyMD. Prescriptions sent directly to your home or to your local pharmacy. You get to choose. You get all your medical records in one place. You get unlimited access to your doctor for only $99 per month with no additional visit fees or co-pays. SteadyMD will even help you understand and get the most out of your health insurance. But look, insurance is not required. SteadyMD, primary care, now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. Go to SteadyMD.com slash cleanup. Take their free quiz. See which doctor is a perfect fit for you. SteadyMD.com slash cleanup. No risk, no long-term commitment to get started. That's S-T-E-A-D-Y-M-D dot com slash cleanup. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. For our next segment, I wanted to discuss the slew of voter suppression bills, but I also wanted to talk about Garland as how he now <laughs> runs the DOJ. And lo and behold, I found a story that discusses both. So I get to talk about both and I want to get into it. All right. So um, this is biased because I'm probably I'm I'm Southern. I'm not probably Southern. I am Southern, as you can probably <laughs> listeners can probably tell and immediately, you know, clock me on. But um, yeah, so I wanted Doug Jones to be the attorney general. Mm. So I am a little bit, you know, like uh, Garland. OK, but I I've noticed some criticisms of Garland coming out. And then I've also noticed the slew of voter suppression bills and they've just kind of merged into one story together. So I want to get into it. So Merrick Garland announced that the DOJ is suing Georgia over its new election law. This is actually the eighth lawsuit over the law. Uh, probably between now and then, there might be additional lawsuits. But we already have the Georgia NAACP concerned black clergy, and Mark Elias, of course, uh, is in the fray on behalf of New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, and Rise Free. But it is still a big deal that the DOJ is now entering the arena. Yeah, and, and to be clear... This is the Georgia law with which you are familiar that caused Major League Baseball to pull the All-Star game out of Atlanta. This is the one that makes it illegal to give water or food to anybody waiting in line. It makes it more difficult to vote absentee by mail. It limits the use of ballot drop boxes. And, I, you know, we've talked about this, but the, the, the most critical aspect, which is allowing state officials to take over local election boards, you know, the kind of thing that couldn't happen in 2020 that Republicans would now like to make happen in the future. 
Exactly. So the grounds of this suit is the violation of Article 2 of the Voting Rights Act, mm. which prohibits laws that result in a, quote, denial or abridgment of a right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. Mm. In fact, the head of the Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark, said, quote, these legislative actions occurred at a time when the black population in Georgia continues to steadily increase and after a historic election that saw record voter turnout across the state particularly for absentee voting, which black voters are now more likely to use than white voters. And that is exactly what this lawsuit alleges. Yeah. And and look, that's exactly what this law does. Right. It targets black voters. We even saw where Georgia tried to keep black voters from voting in 2020. We saw the incredibly long lines that people stood in just so that they could cast their ballot. Um, the Republican Party knows they cannot win on votes alone. They have put that down in writing in the Hofeller docs, right? And um, if it is, if Stacey Abrams' trends continue, Georgia is effectively a blue state going forward. Um, I think also it is reasonable to look around and go, um, what 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 other states are you know are the next Georgia in line? Is that Texas? Who who knows, right? Um, so if you're the Republican Party, uh, you 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 can't reverse the demographic reality that you are a minority in this country of the population. Uh, but what you can do is make yourself a majority of the voting population by disenfranchising more of the other side's voters. Um, and the reason Georgia is blue is that African American voters turned out. So uh, Georgia wants to keep them from voting. Um, Morgan, d does this lawsuit signal a trend in your mind? Like we've had a lot of really complimentary things to say about Kristen Clark uh, here on the show. Um, do, do you think that that signals a trend that the DOJ is going to get more involved with protecting voting rights, particularly as we know there are dozens of bills pending in dozens of red states to try and do exactly what Georgia's done? I think so. And I also do want to say that, yeah, the, the effort that happened in Georgia was incredible. And I do think that they are afraid that other southern states are going to take this lead. I think they are very scared of that, that they will lose their grip on the mm. South. So um, but I do think the DOJ is going to step in here and get more involved with the voting rights. So this was underscored by Merrick Garland himself when he said at his press conference, this lawsuit is the first of many steps we are taking to ensure that all eligible voters can cast a vote, that all lawful votes are counted, and that every voter has access to accurate information. Also, the DOJ announced it is launching a task force to address a rise in threats against election officials. So I think the DOJ here, they're signaling that even without a For the People Act, um, thanks mm. to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, the DOJ is going to use still, in the meanwhile, these limited tools that they do have to protect, protect these voting rights. Yeah, I, I, I think the phrase that you just used there is is really crucial to understand, right? Like the the idea of uh, what remains of the Voting Rights Act are limited tools, right? So um, what's the DOJ asking for in, in this lawsuit? So it only attacks these um, ballot drop-off rules, the absentee rules, and the food and water distribution ban, which is interesting. So there's no attack directly on that provision that would allow these um, state officials to take over local these local election officials and override them, mm. which is interesting. But yeah. there is another weird thing. It asks that preclearance be used against Georgia. Okay, you're, so now <laughs> you're, you're going to have to break this down for me, uh, because I mean, my understanding is 
Shelby County versus Holder uh, that effectively killed the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act. That was a a uh, Roberts opinion. Uh, and, you know, the the reasoning was, you know, well, the Voting Rights Act is 50 years old and we've had a black president and racism is pretty much over. So, you know, there's no need to make sure that we preclear states anymore. And then, of course, immediately after Shelby County versus Holder, you saw a bunch of historically Southern states pass a whole bunch of new voter suppression bills now that they can. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm skeptical. Like what, what to talk to me about that. Yes. And uh, I was in Mississippi at the time. I very well remember as soon as they <laughs> yeah, said you, racism you is over, <laughs> they were like, huh, we have all these voting rights bills that we, you know, and they of course dress them up as voting rights bills and um, to protect the right to vote. Um, but yeah, I remember when all those were passed randomly after, you know, Shelby County v. Holder uh, <laughs> happened. It's such a weird coincidence. So, but there is this part of the Voting Rights Act under Section 2 that still allows for preclearance to be imposed against states that commit egregious discrimination against minority voters. Of course, what egregious means, who's to say? But um, I think the DOJ, they really wanted to be careful here in their suit to only attack what it felt it could for sure connect to Section 2. But if mm. it were me bringing this, um, I, I know that I'm too good for the DOJ apparently, but I would just attack all of it. And then if the judge disagrees with what parts violate Section 2, so be it. You know, I would, I would let the judge decide that. You know, if they're like, well, you know, we think that your argument about... Um, you know, the state election officials then taking over the local election boards is a little bit of a stretch. You know, so be it. But I'll let the judge decide that. But that would be me. Uh, Merrick Garland has not hired me, breaking news, to <laughs> <laughs> file this lawsuit. So, um, but that would be my approach. But again, I'm not at the DOJ, so I can't say. But if preclearance is reimposed, and this will prevent Georgia from passing laws that disenfranchise black voters because the DOJ would then have oversight over any laws they want to pass regarding voting. There are some courts that say that there must be racist intent, though, in order to show a violation of the VRA protection of minority voters. Um, we see that with Alito and Abbott v. Perez. <laughs> um, Ian Milheiser at Vox actually seems to believe that Abbott v. Perez is actually going to kill this suit. Um, he says there's still a possibility, but it's going to have a very, very uphill climb. But basically, yeah, preclearance was um, essentially like with, with a uh, state that is historically disenfranchised voters, which, you know, uh, we know our history, hopefully here. So uh, a lot of the South. Um, so, yeah, they would have to basically go through these hoops and have approval by the DOJ. But there has been no um, state that's had to do this since, again, Shelby County v. Holder. So this is a very yeah. interesting tactic. So so if I understand that correctly, after so. Pre-Shelby County versus versus Holder, the, the VRA required that any state that had historically discriminated against African-Americans, and it essentially listed off the old Confederacy, uh, was required to seek preclearance from a three-judge panel in D.C. before they could pass new laws that imposed restrictions on voting. Uh, Shelby County v. Holder got rid of presumptive preclearance, but it sounds like your reading on this on this case in light of... of uh, subsequent case law is that the the part that remains in section two so that was section five was the automatic preclearance yes. but the part that remains in section two uh applies but it applies only in the cases of quote egregious discrimination and that 
our friend Sam Alito uh, has read that as you must demonstrate racist intent. Um, and and so if if that's the case, I, I, I think I can understand, you know, strategically saying uh, we can demonstrate the racist intent with the you can't hand out water bottles because, you know, Fulton County gets the same amount of funding for the same amount of polling sites as, you know, an unpopulated void county in, uh, you know, western Georgia. Um, I get, So I get that. It, it is harder to say that that takeover is necessarily uh, a uh, uh, has racist intent. No, no. Um, I, I think that's right. I think that it is it is harder. And, you know, it's the esteemed of Justice Alito. He's always ruining everything. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So basically, um, this is dealing with, um, yeah, Section 2, not Section 5. So, but there has to be that finding of egregious racist intent, um, uh, uh, that egregious discrimination against minority voters. So basically, the court um, courts are kind of split on how you can find this. So... Um, it's either it has to be, um, you know, you were intending to be racist. So basically everybody got their clan hoods on and walked to the state legislature and passed this law, or if it just has a, you know, um, impact on minority voters. So there is a split there. But um, with Abbott v. Perez, I mean, that was a redistricting case. Um, so it can be distinguished, but I mean, you just look at what Dan Crenshaw's district looks like. It looks like a snake with one of those giant pyramid heads, like the bad guys <laughs> having Silent Hill. And then they got, and then it's the snake got a Brazilian butt lift and it's bent over and twerking. It looks insane. <laughs> I am describing this as accurately as I can. So, um, so yeah, anyway, so Alito just said, well, there's no racist intent behind the redistricting, so it is fine. But, um, Ian Milheiser at Vox seems to believe that that president is going to lead the um, Northern District of Georgia here to say, oh, well, maybe there was no racist intent because, again, well, they weren't wearing Klan robes technically <laughs> when they passed the law. So you can't say it was racist. So it's fine. Yeah. And, and look, not everybody is Justice Alito. <laughs> um the old, you know, there there are other ways, the other methodologies that courts have accepted for uh, demonstrating, for example, that the law has uh, a disparate impact from which, you know, we can infer uh, some level of intent, even if it's not, you know, kind of the dressing up in the clan hood. So how does this suit kind of plead out the case, right? Like, that, 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 does it? Well, why don't you talk about how how this suit does it? It does it really well. So the DOJ here is aware of these differing, mm. you know, kind of standards. So they do a good job of establishing both. So the suit goes on to explain how the black population in Georgia increased by 13.9% from 2010 to 2019. So now that population is 31.9% of Georgia. Wow. Yeah, which is, you know, a huge amount of population like that, you know, uh, as I've uh, always said, when people, you know, they talk about about Mississippi, I'm like, that's the blackest state in the country. Yeah. So you might want to watch, watch your mouth, you know. So, um, so yeah, like the fact is, you know, the South is, um, you know, growing in that electorate. And 69% of that growth happened in the Atlanta region. Everybody I know is moving to Atlanta. So, yeah. so that, that tracks. Um, so they actually talk in the lawsuit about how the white electorate in Georgia actually is decreasing 
while the black electorate is increasing. So in the rent runoff, and they give a lot of numbers in this lawsuit, um, 54.34% of black registrants voted, while 64.11% of white registrants voted. So that's about like, you know, close to a 10% yeah. um, difference there. So it's, you know, and that gap is closing. So they also talk about how more black voters voted absentee in 2020. It points out how it's not a coincidence that these laws are going to restrict a way that black people often vote after several black candidates won, including Senator Warnock. And then also Georgia elected its first Jewish American senator. And um, that matters because they make connections to this bigoted and very racist abuse that election workers and candidates received. There was anti-Semitism going on in campaigns against um Senator Ossoff, there was, uh, you know, these racist attacks against Senator Warnock. And then they even throw in, you know, the racist abuse that Stacey Abrams received when she ran in 2018. There's an incredibly racist robocall yeah. that went around. Um, it's horrible. I mean, yeah, you can go read about it. It's awful. So they, the suit also goes into Georgia's racist history. But if Justice Roberts were presiding, he would say, yes, I understand Georgia has a terrible history with this, but racism was fixed when Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. (laughs) So, you know, so I don't know how this is going to go, but the suit does lay its case out very well, but there is a very big hill to climb here, but it's very ambitious and I like to see it. Yeah, I think I agree with that assessment, right? It sounds like the, the fact that it has both right, the statistical component and the historical component, you know, is going to uh, give, uh, you know, the, the the judge in this case, you know, uh, kind of maximum flexibility as to, you know, what he'd like to uh, uh, to sink his teeth into. Who, who, who is the judge in this case? Okay, so we have J.P. Boulay. Boulay. I think it's Boulay. J.P. Boulay. I don't know why I said Boulay, like he's French. <laughs> <laughs> I went to New Orleans there for a second. I'm sorry. But bad news is he's a Trump appointee, but he is 50. So he's not a 28-year-old Federalist Society member that just <laughs> came out of Yale. So silver lining there. He got his undergrad from Washington and Lee and his JD from University of Georgia. So he's a fellow SEC law school grad. Um, He spent a good amount of time in JAG, and he tried dozens of cases both as a prosecutor and for defense. Then he became a partner at Jones Day, which is a huge law firm, um, at their office in Atlanta, where he was a member of corporate criminal investigations and business and tort litigation groups. He became a state judge in 2015, and he actually founded a veterans treatment court, which I thought was pretty Mm -hmm. cool. He was uh, also appointed as a state judge by Governor Nathan Deal until 2019, and that's when he was selected from a federal bench by Trump. You know, as we are all familiar, he went on this federal judge hiring spree, and uh, neither of us were selected. I wonder why, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we met the criteria, but he's been a district judge for the Northern District of Georgia since June 14th, 2019, so he is newer. Yeah, yeah. And, and look— I think we're all rightfully skeptical, concerned over a Trump appointee. I, I, I will point out, right, one of my very good friends is now on the bench as a Trump appointee. She was an, an Obama appointee that was held up uh, because of the Mitch McConnell, Obama's not allowed to appoint justices anymore uh, rule. And um, and so her judgeship at uh uh, the uh, U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland was just went nowhere. And then um, when 
that hold was lifted, Republicans in Maryland uh, suggested uh, that uh, this is Stephanie Gallagher, uh, that they renominate her. And so, right. <laughs> so the same person who was totally unacceptable three years earlier, uh, you know, sailed through with with bipartisan support. And and, you know, for Belie here, it, it from everything you've laid out, you know, rather not be in front of a Trump appointee. But if it's going to be in front of anybody, it sounds like this is this is not a bad choice. Yeah, and he's got a lot of this criminal experience, mm. so I'm not sure. I can't. I couldn't tell how he's going to treat voting rights. Although, as a Trump appointee, then probably not promising because you know it's different from a situation of your friend. I mean, the Republicans in Maryland are a bit bizarre. I'll just go ahead and <laughs> say true, that. True, true. Um, so um, yeah, I'm not sure how he's going to treat this, but the lawsuit does a very good job of laying everything out. Like I said, the timeline, the history this racist intent, um, it, it does a really great job of that. So if a law was passed, like we talked about earlier, because the GOP leaders in Georgia did not like the outcome of a 2020 election, they do a great job of connecting those two, you know, to this timeline of, you know, here's how the electorate changed, here's what happened, and they did not like that, so they decided we're going to stop these people from voting. And I think that asking for preclearance is an interesting strategy. There are seven other cases, at least, before this judge attacking this law, So, and all of them are before him, mm. uh, J.P. Booley. So he will definitely be hearing all kinds of grounds for attacking the law, and he's going to become very familiar with this case. I mean, it's eight, eight cases on the same subject matter before him. But we shall see how he rules. You're an optimist, so I am going to try not to drag you down. I think the best move is to abolish the filibuster and pass the For the People ah, Act. Ah, here, here. But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, we are here. So, in hell. Um, hopefully not for long. But in the meantime, this is what we have. And so we shall see. I mean, it's promising that the DOJ is stepping in, though, and Merrick Garland seems to be looking and saying, okay, well, what tools do I have to step in and protect voting rights in the meanwhile? Because that is a priority of the Biden administration, it seems, very much so from the DOJ's latest actions. I I, I, I couldn't agree more. So I, I guess bottom line is that we've, we've got to keep an eye on it. That's exactly right. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, we're going to take another quick uh, break for an ad, and then we will come back. Hey, this is an ad for Monk Pack. This is Andrew here. This portion of the podcast is sponsored by Monk Pack. It is ridiculously hard to find snacks that are both healthy and delicious, right? Healthier they are, the worse they taste. You know that. Uh, that's why I gotta tell you, I really do like Monk Pack, right? Um, you know, I've been doing the keto diet super hard during COVID. Um, I'm trying to get back on that horse again. Monk Pack Keto Seed and Nut Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs total per bar, only 150 calories. And uh, best part, they actually taste really, really good. Like they are great for anyone. Uh, like, you know, there's truly is trying to do keto. They would be the perfect snack for anybody trying to eat better. Cut back on sugar carbs without sacrificing taste. The Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, they've got a really, really good balance of sweet and salty. You get the crunch from the whole nuts and seeds. Um, 
they still manage to be soft and chewy. If you've done keto before, you know textures can be a big deal. And uh, and I think they really do it right. They come in delicious flavors, right? Caramel sea salt, right? You know, I'm a caramel sea salt guy. Uh, sea salt and dark chocolate, peanut butter, dark chocolate. Look, this is perfect for a quick snack to indulge your sweet tooth with without too much guilt, right? So they're also packed with protein. They're filling and satisfying. They're keto friendly. They are gluten free. They are plant-based. There's no soy, no trans fats, no sugar alcohols, no artificial colors. Um, I, I, I gotta tell you, I'm snacking on these bars. So uh, to make sure that I'm always fully stocked up, I signed up for a subscription and um, it, it, it saves me 10% on every order, ships to me automatically, getting treats on a regular basis in the mail total game changer in my effort to eat healthier because it's not, you know, dependent on if I've made a special trip out to the grocery store or not. I really think if if you're trying to do that, you'll you'll like Monk Pack. So try it for yourself, right? As always, we have a special deal for our listeners. 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code CLEANUP at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund the money, whichever you prefer. So here's how you get started. You know how to do this. Monkpack.com, M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com. Select any product, enter cleanup at checkout, get 20% off. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And, and we really want to thank them for sponsoring the show. Next up, it's Infrastructure Week again. (laughs) (laughs) Always Infrastructure Week. And you and Allison correctly predicted that Biden would do exactly what it looks like he's doing. Going to Joe Manchin and the most centrist Democratic senators and let them try and craft a bipartisan bill that actually funds more than a trillion dollars into infrastructure. That's into rebuilding roads and bridges and expanding rural access to broadband, which you know, disproportionately benefits a lot of red states. I can speak to this from experience. Mm -hmm. So you get Republicans to buy into the actual infrastructure in enough numbers to pass a real bill. And then you can get the rest of the stuff you wanted through the end of the year budget reconciliation process where you only do need 50 votes. Yeah, I told him to do that, right? (laughs) But what what I didn't (laughs) tell Biden to do was the classic Trump thing of, you know, saying the quiet part out loud and that looks like it's happened, right? So here's what's happened. Last week, Biden appeared with, you know, usual suspects on the Democratic right, you know, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, uh, but also five Republicans, right? Uh, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, uh, Rob Portman, who's always been, you know, sort of more centrist on budget issues. Uh, and and Bill Cassidy had put a pin in that. That's that is so interesting to me that sort of uh, after being kind of a doctrinaire right wing Republican, um, you know, it feels like after voting to convict Trump on the second impeachment, he's like, well, you know, they hate me now anyway. So. So might as well govern. Um, It's just an interesting story to me. Anyway, um, so uh, Biden appeared with those five. They announced that they've got six more Republicans on board who were prepared to vote for that trillion dollar infrastructure package you described. Right. And and I, I have to point out, in addition to right, the. Giveaways to red states, which shocker, Democrats are always in favor of doing because like we would like kids in rural areas to be able to get on the Internet. Um, We're not, you know, we don't punish them for living in a state that, you know, didn't vote for a presidential candidate. But um, it also has things that, you know, 
qualify as unambiguously liberal stuff, right? Like investing in clean energy and investing in mass transit, right? Um, and all of this is in, if not open defiance of Mitch McConnell, he hasn't weighed in one way or the other. It's It's been, it's doing an end run around Mitch McConnell, right? So look, all of that really, really good political strategy. Great. Good job, Joe. Then Biden had to open his mouth later on in the day. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't see that necessarily as a bad yeah. thing, him opening his mouth. <laughs> but um, because I do think that a lot of, you know, especially on the more progressive side of things, they're getting kind of frustrated with Biden, you know, and the whole like, even though most of this is, you know, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, like, I'm sorry, that's our majority. We, uh -huh. You live with the facts that are on the ground. But I, I think that he's just trying to signal like, yeah, I mean, I got this done. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah, Biden and, and you and I just I'm sorry to interrupt, but but I, I want to underscore you make an excellent point here, right, that it is really, really easy for us to criticize. But Biden is walking a tightrope. He has to keep Joe Manchin in line. And then at the same time, he's got to go out and and keep, you know, what is now what I hope he starts to think of as his base uh, of, of progressive Democrats, right, of, of, of blue no matter who folks um, and to say, like, hey, look. You know, this is this is why you elected me and I am still voting. You know, I'm not I'm not mealy mouth. I'm not wishy washy. I haven't given up on the rest of the infrastructure bill. I, it, it, that's a really, really good point. And I and I just wanted to underscore that. Yes. Yeah, I think he is trying to show that I am not compromising on anything, basically, but I'm getting them in line. You know, you get on board or you can go shut yeah. up. Basically, so, so what, did, what did he, he say? Works. Um, so, yeah, Biden vowed that he would only sign the bipartisan plan into law if Congress simultaneously sends him a bill that's crafted separately by the Democrats to shore up the other elements that the Republicans objected to as them saying, oh, this isn't really infrastructure. So what Biden is calling our nation's social mm. infrastructure that he wants to shore up in this bill as well. So that second bill would be drafted solely by Democrats and that would be introduced through reconciliation, which as I said, only needs 50 yeah. votes. And, and, and again, right. So you see that tightrope, right? So you get the Republicans to agree to fund a trillion dollars in necessary stuff. Um, and then I, you know, how much of this is, uh, you know, does it motivate your base or to those Republicans that signed up? Does it feel like you're being taunted afterwards with, you know, the thing they know you can do anyway, because you've already done it, you know, once for the for the covid relief bill, um, according to Politico, right, a center right kind of publication, um, Republicans New Democrats were working on the reconciliation bill, uh, but they got, you know, hurt feelings when Biden said it out loud. Um, and that led, you know, some of those second tier Republican lawmakers. Right. Not the ones who helped craft the deal, but the the also because yeah, you got to get to 10. Right. So you've got an, another six uh, and they include, you know, Lindsey Graham and Mike Rounds from South Dakota. And and, and those were the folks who, who, you know, threatened to take their ball and go home. Yeah, I just, I think that Lindsey Graham was going to do that anyway, because he misses having his name in the Politico oh, headlines. Oh, man, yeah. That Lindsey Graham but loves Lindsey Graham, that is for sure. <laughs> he does. I mean, I love me too, but we, we love ourselves in different ways, don't we? <laughs> uh, so the important thing, though, I think the important thing, though, is that you're calling this a deal. Mm. 
and that's how it's been reported. But it's not really a deal yet because it's not a, we have voted on a real bill. Instead, what we have is a framework for the kind of stuff that these 11 Republicans have tentatively agreed that they would want to fund over the next eight years. And then there's the funding part. So some of it would come from new spending, but Republicans are, of course, going to demand that some of the programs be self-funding through things like auctioning off the 5G spectrum that uh, gives you COVID, according to crazy people, (laughs) or collecting back taxes. So that means that the scoring provided by the Independent Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, is coming back into the picture. So that's going to be really crucial. So the more of this looks like a small raise, the harder it's going to be for the Republicans to back out of it. Though. Yeah, that that's a really, really excellent point. And, and you know, I would just add to that uh, infrastructure spending is politically very popular. Republicans have already done the photo op appearance, right, with the president at the Rose Garden. So if the... De- if the framework, as you put it, I'll take that correction. That's really that's really smart. Um, if if that framework blows up on their watch, I, it strikes me that you know it's more likely than not that it's Republicans who are going to shoulder that blame. You know, and especially as we're heading into midterm season, right? And Democrats are looking for good arguments to try and win back the Senate. Um, Joe Manchin won't end the filibuster is a hard sell, you know, in Peoria, but. Republicans won't rebuild our bridges, isn't? Yeah, and especially as, you know, we see more and more of this infrastructure happening in the news, right? You think about the Miami condo collapse. Mm. You think about, you know, the Mississippi River Bridge that I have driven over a dozen times. Um, If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's a, there's a literal crack in it. Mm. And it, it was, and people were saying, oh, it was only a matter of time before this thing, like, you know, collapses and a bunch of bridges t- tumble into the Mississippi River. So that's comforting. But yeah, so we, yeah, that is a good, that is the sell to make. So we'll be watching to see if Biden uh, has really outfoxed him. <laughs> let's, let's hope so. All right. So, Morgan, I can't wait to get to our last segment. Uh, but now that the show's a couple months in, we definitely need to do our monthly shout out to our hall of fame patrons um so if you are in that tier ten dollars or more a month you will get the shout out once a month every month starting now so um and and i'm not saying that like we love our hall of fame patrons more than the rest of you but we do so uh thanks to mitchell patty b january 20th baby chris waltrip jameel chohan charles jones medicon seven R.I.P. My friend Harry Mosley survived cancer twice, only to be shot by some punk. Uh, the incomparable Jessica Outbeer, F-H-V-J-X-R-S-T-P-H-Y-V-F-E-E-R. All right. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> but hey, you know, you give us you give us uh, Hall of Fame levels and I'll try and go through. David in Brooklyn. Joe Manchin is the Donald Trump of Susan Collins's crime or no criming Lance Buckley. It's kind of nice having a f- competent federal government again. Summit shuffleboard.com. They said I could be anything. So I became two fabulous lesbians. Stephen McKinnon, dude, Christopher Dalpy, Lauren Eggert, and our all time great. The Conrad Michaels of all 45, Chris Simpson. Okay. Now onto the D block. So, For the last but not least segment, I wanted to talk about the insurrection because Andrew knows I like to follow not just the comings and goings of the last administration, but also the various people trying to destroy our democracy because truly I am sick and there is something wrong with me. Uh, All right. But what insurrection are we talking about now? Right, There are so many to choose from. And um, uh, what 
charges, right? Like it, it seems like the potential charges out there vary from, you know, trespass to assault to conspiracy to seditious conspiracy. All right. So these are the first assault charges against somebody for assaulting a member of a media Ooh. that were filed just a few days ago. Shane Jason Woods, age 43. He has an indictment longer than my arm, um, which is always uh, not good to have. Uh, he has assault on a law enforcement officer, assault in a special maritime and territorial jurisdiction, and engaging physical violence in a restricted building or grounds. Ooh, special maritime jurisdiction. I hope the flag has gold fringe on it and that he is a sovereign citizen and we will just get like unbelievable levels of creativity. All right, but, but with all that said, um, you said assault on a member of the media. What exactly did he do? Right. Like it, it, it seems like, right. I, I, I think I'm, I'm sharing a view. A lot of people have here that there are people who came charging into the Capitol without a plan. Right. And then there are those who clearly came in there with a plan, with zip ties, with tear gas. Right. Or, or at least came in there and were prepared for it to escalate, you know, even if they didn't intend for it, it, it Anyway, this guy sounds like he belongs in that latter category, right? The intent category. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't get to use my maritime law skills that I have. But um, (laughs) it's just it's a special area because it's the capital. But um, he definitely is the latter. So he um, is somebody that came in there and he seems to have committed violence, according to the indictment. So he allegedly tripped and pushed a U.S. Capitol police officer to the ground. And this officer had already been sprayed with bear mace earlier by another insurrectionist. Oh, oh, is this guy was this guy with the bear mace guy or is it just like there was one poor Capitol police officer that ran into both of these people? I think it happens pretty quickly. Mm. You can see there is a YouTube video up that actually the um, the DOJ does cite to this YouTube video. and They literally take screenshots from the video and post them in. But yeah, it looks like, oh, here's a guy that's already down. Let me, you know, go into him and beat him oh, up. But um, yeah, which because bear mace, um, I have never been maced at all. But I do know bear mace, like that is to get a bear away from you. So that is some intense stuff. Like you are going to be down on the ground if you just got bear mace. I'm not sure if they were together or if they knew each other. Mm. Um, I don't have those details. But he also then ran into and tackled a cameraman outside the Capitol as the cameraman was facing away from him. This is also in that same video. You know, like a like a macho man does, knocking people down when, you know, when they're already like bear mace or they have their back to you. So there's a video that shows that Woods is fleeing the area where the cameraman was and he causes, you know, he tackles him, causes him to fall to the ground and drop this, you know, this, his news camera. So they say that Woods was also among insurrectionists who damaged equipment that was left after media fled the area because, you know, things escalated. And so a lot of time, you know, there was some equipment that was left. And also, clearly, if somebody knocks you over, you know, sometimes they'll drop your equipment, etc. So one cameraman said his equipment that is worth about, you know, you think of these news cameras, they are expensive. Mm. So this is about this uh, equipment alone. One cameraman said about $34,000 was destroyed. So there's a whole circle of them. You can, again, see this in videos and such of them that are damaging the equipment that's on the ground that had to be abandoned or was possibly dropped or, you know, somehow taken from people. And they're just over here just beating up on this equipment and yelling horrible things about the media. All right. Uh, and, and, and yes, and I've I've seen those and, and 
I'm glad that that serious charges are coming down at, at, at people that are, you know, assaulting the, the press and, and destroying expensive equipment. But, Morgan, I happen to know firsthand <laughs> that you are great <laughs> at cyber stalking. So I'm guessing that you found some stuff that has eluded the mainstream reporting about this guy. Yes, I did. So, um, of course I did. Yes, because I was like, hmm, let me find some things. Um, So, he's a small business owner. He is from Illinois. I know a lot of people love to be like, oh, all these people are probably from Alabama. No, the Midwest has, you know, the Midwest is be wildin'. So, um, he is a small business owner. He owns his heating and cooling business. If you look at, actually... um, if, you know, I know this from, you know, listening to Robert Evans, his podcast, Behind the Bastards, um, other books and sources and things. And what I've noticed is that who is most likely to support fascists, it's not really the poor. It's like these middle class to upper middle class people. A lot of them, you know, have their own businesses and such. You know, they because if you look at the kind of, you know, these big trucks they drive, these are like $60,000 trucks. Yeah. And a lot of them, but they like to cosplay as, oh, I'm a redneck. And also some of them are actually quite wealthy. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's a whole cosplay thing they feel the need to do. It, it's Cosplay bonkers. as a redneck is going into my vernacular now. I love it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, unlike me, who's unfortunately a real one. <laughs> uh, so there is some poor people too, but it is wild just how those parallels match up. If you look at who historically over time has supported fascists, yeah, yeah. Bit, who actually was at this insurrection, who participated... Uh, the demographics line up. I'm just going to say that. But the indictment does have this hilarious tidbit. He went to Taco Bell the day oh. before the insurrection. And I don't know why, but that cracked me up. Like, he's just drinking that Baja Blast. French wrap and just supreme, was like, you know baby. what? <laughs> the crunch wrap. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm also guessing, and this is, I feel like this one is just going to set up on a tee because these people can never shut the fuck up on social media. I'm guessing he posted about the insurrection the day of, the day after, right? Oh, how did you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he posted on Facebook, um, the best social media site, of course, that he was headed to D.C. and also a Facebook friend. Um, I don't know if it was so much as a friend, but because the <laughs> FBI has this in the indictment, or in, the DOJ does, Um and this friend messaged him and said, saw you out in front of the White House, ha. Huh? Woods responded, Capitol building. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant state capitol. When did you guys get there? Then Woods responds, last night, driving home, long drive. And so I love that correction he made. No, no, I was not in front of the White House. I was, in fact, in front of the Capitol, you know, during the insurrection. <laughs> I, so... Basically, he admitted it, right? When the friend said White House, he was like, no, no, no. I was I was definitely at the insurrection. <laughs> the smartest people. But yes, exactly. And he sent a picture of the Capitol to another Facebook user who responded, nice. The swarm will be coming in an hour or two. I don't like that word. Uh, glad you guys made it safe. Grab an Antifa by their hair and send them rolling, will ya? <sighs> Which lovely use of gender neutral pronouns there, I will say. So he and this Facebook user did have prior conversations. <laughs> and then in December 2020, Wood said to this Facebook user, uh, Trump wouldn't be golfing around if he was worried. Oh, so close. Right. What you mean is... Trump was not worried because he has never cared. So close to getting the point. 
Exactly. I'm like, let's work through that thought a little bit. <laughs> um, so the Facebook user responds to Woods saying, true, I hope that he has an ace in his pocket. I want to see all these asshats go to jail too. Woods responded by saying, hung. So, you know, escalating it. And the friend says, fire squad should be hung by treason, though. I, I, you know, as you were telling me that story, like I... I went from hung to hung jury. Like it just, it never occurred to me that of course these people meant, you know, hung by the neck until dead. Anyway, um, I, I, I guess this, this goes to diffuse any potential arguments that he was, you know, just visiting the Capitol, wanting a tour, you know, wanting to check out the gift shop. Yeah, no, he, he, uh, yeah, the argument that I was just uh, perusing the uh, snow globe, I, I don't think that's going to work out so well for him. But here's something else that's fun, uh, depending on your definition of fun. <laughs> but on January 19th, 2021, an associate asked Woods via Facebook Messenger, so this is January 19th after the insurrection, has the FBI come after you yet? Oh. Yes. So I love that some random, I guess that was friends of him was like, hey, man, has the FBI come and gotten you? I don't know if this was somebody taunting him or somebody who was genuinely concerned. But uh, I do love how the DOJ just kind of ends their paragraph on that section of the indictment with just that like and scene. Um, excellent writing there for that. But they do have a lot of evidence. So they've compared the photos of him, you know, to his license, his passport photo. They have a witness who identified him who was actually a customer of his back in his town and has been his customer, like, consistently. Mm. And, you know, they've obviously probably showed pictures and were like, oh, yeah, that's that's Woods. You know, I, I've dealt with him before. And they also have another witness who's identified him. They have these YouTube videos. There's literally video footage of him on YouTube, like I've said before, attacking the officer and the cameraman. And then he gets over that toppled barricade and joins in to uh, amongst the people who are, you know, destroying this equipment. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like that. Uh, and again, as you responsibly pointed out, these are all allegations at, at this point. Um, but it sounds like... Uh, Again, the DOJ is doing a really, really good job in teeing up these cases, right? In terms of proving an intent here, right? <laughs> like, uh, I think, uh, you know, you you, you have to, uh, uh, prosecutors every day take cases to the jury uh, and ask them to infer mindset. Um, I It's hard to do more to show the mentality that these folks had when they arrived at the Capitol, um, then, then, you know, show this kind of immediate propensity for, for violence, but also for, for cowardly violence, right? Like the, the going after the officer who was down because of the bear mace or the cameraman with his back turned or, you know, destroying equipment, but only once it's on the ground. Right. I, I, I don't know. What do you make of all of that? I think that's exactly right. I, I think it is absolutely cowardice. And it, it shows that, you know, once these people, you know, a lot of, for a lot of these people, they will, though, they will join into violence because he definitely did participate in the violence as well. So that's something to keep in mind. But it is, again, this kind of like violence that's couched in this cowardice. So that's, you know, definitely something. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I can't, you know, psychoanalyze this man. I'm, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but, um, but I do think that is some a trend, at least, to at least, you know, pay attention to and, um, and examine. But 
Um, I think all that's exactly right. Um, the point that you made about the cowardice and the violence, but all now all this is alleged, you know, legal disclaimer, but this is a strong case. And I keep seeing a trend of these Facebook users too. Like I, I don't see very many, you know, people being like they posted on Twitter or, you know, there's been some, but, um, a lot of them I've noticed are the Facebook and that seems to be very consistent as Facebook is the social media that keeps getting thrown out there as like the, basically the documenter of these uh, crimes. So even the ones who are posting about what they were doing or what they did. So I can't help but wonder how much of his radicalization, you know, which I'm sure if I had this prior resentment towards the libs, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying Facebook created that, but I do wonder like how much of that was just kind of bust wide open by Facebook's algorithms, right? We've seen these stories about how Facebook's algorithms have, you know, made people go further down into that rabbit hole of, you know, just hating liberals and being racist and, and sexist and just awful. But also it really shows that they really believed also that they probably would face zero consequences. I mean, they're over here posting about it on Facebook and these same people have probably made fun of people on the news. You know, you would see these news stories about, oh, this guy robbed a gas station and then posted, you know, the money he got on Facebook and that's how he was caught. And they'll be like, haha, dummy. And it's like, they were doing the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it. I think to me, that means they really believed that they would face zero consequences, which is really, I think, something worth exploring. You know, do did they think that Donald Trump was going to take back over and they were going to be, you know, given rewards or do they think nobody would care and that we were just going to move on? Yeah. I, I, I don't know, but look here, here's what I do know. Right. As, as we continue to talk about on the show, um, there are over 500 of these pending cases. Uh, the DOJ needs to sort through that. I love uh, Morgan that we were able to do a deep dive on this this Woods case and you know kind of zoom in. Um, it, it is it is certainly worth pointing out. Like there are now uh, uh, of those over 500 cases, uh, over a hundred are folks who have been charged with assaulting officers. Um, so you know it, it there's a lot of work to be done and um, and we're gonna keep monitoring that trying to figure it out um i think you you and i are both of the view that sure would have been nice to have had a bipartisan january 6th commission to uh investigate this for the public and proceed along another track but um we'll have to make do for now with uh with what the doj does in bringing these cases morgan thank you so much for coming on today um i really appreciate it uh it it's always hard to sit in allison's chair um, but, uh, but I, th- I thought you did a fantastic job and, uh, anything, uh, anything you want to promote before we go? Um, I guess I will promote my Twitter un- un- unless you are a, um, a bar association looking for suspect tweets. No, you didn't see my Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't post anything too wild. I've just been accused of posting thirst traps, but, um, no, um, you can follow me on Twitter. I talk about serious things and also, um, not serious things. So, um, that is at most string. I will spell it because my accent, you know, makes it a little bit difficult. That is M-O-S-T-R-I-N-G. So you can find me on Twitter, M-O-S-T-R-I-N-G. And um, you can find me occasionally on other podcasts. You can find me on, you know, sometimes I'm on opening arguments. Sometimes I'm on humans holler at the news. Um, you can, I'm basically a semi-professional podcast <laughs> guest uh, slash substitute host at this point. So um We'll see where that goes. But yeah, for now, Twitter is the best way to keep up with and me. And also the best damn associate in the world. So Morgan, uh, thank, thank you, you so much. And uh, everybody have a great week and we will see you next Wednesday. 
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 